coming to you live from Parkview Studios. I am in the den. This is Sal Biazzi of The Brothers Ketchup, a weekly podcast where two brothers come together and just catch up. Except for this week, where I am not joined, as usual, by my brother Frankie Biazzi. He is on a trip away in Florida, and I am here alone in the studio by myself, and I'm going to attempt to record a half-hour podcast, because this week we're going to do something a little different. Um, obviously, since we're not together, we were going to try and maybe record over Zoom, but that's impersonal. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting if we give ourselves this little space here to kind of explore our own minds and record our own podcasts and see what kind of products come out of it. Frankie and I are very different people, but we're also very similar people. So when we get together and talk, I think that's what generates the conversations that we find enjoyable and hopefully if you're a fan of the podcast you find enjoyable but when we split up i think it'll give our listeners if you're out there a chance to get to know us each a little bit better as individuals and that's kind of interesting to me so we're going to both record half hour podcasts we'll release them on the same day as like half episodes um so this should be episode 17 but it's actually 17 and a half and then Frankie will release one later, and that'll be episode 17 and a half. So all together you'll have, but I guess that makes it 18, but really it's 17. So maybe it should be 16 and a half. I'm not sure how the math will work there. But it'll be 17 and a half, and you can listen to both. And I don't know what he's going to talk about. He doesn't know what I'm going to talk about here. Um, hopefully we don't, you know, we're not redundant repeating each other's points or ideas. But I really don't think we will. Um, so I wanted to start somewhere, I want to talk a little bit about myself, because I'm a narcissist, that's why I have a podcast anyway. Um, if you're someone who knows me, if you're a friend of mine, if you're someone I grew up with, if you're a family member, you probably already have an idea of what I am, uh, when it comes to, like, my politics and my thought process. If you're a fan of the show, you're probably getting the idea over the last, you know, handful of weeks of the type of person I am. But let's get deeper into this. Let's talk a little bit about conspiracy theories and why it is that my politics is so heavily defined and and um, guided by what a lot of people find dangerous or what they would view as disinformation or what they kind of want to other or outside in today's society. Um, when I was in college... I went to school in Washington, D.C., many probably know that, and I really did believe that I was going to get into politics after school. I really had a passion for it. I've always been very politically inclined, and I got down there, and I quickly, over the course of my freshman year, realized that the people involved in the political program and politics itself was more, it was less about the governance. You know, I was very interested in current events and civics. I liked the idea of you know, making problems in society better. And the mechanism for doing that is our governments, um, local, state, federal. And it was really a rude awakening that when I got down there, not many people seemed to agree with that. Or if they did agree with that, it was behind the politics of politics, you know, the ability of you know, winning arguments and, and just showing, you know, the other that you're superior, or your ideas are better. And that was really against my philosophy at the time. I was very liberal. I believed in extreme gun control. I really wanted Medicare for all. I believed that 
healthcare was a human right and that pro-choice was the only way to go and all these things. I went to a Catholic university, the Catholic university, and in that time I attended like the right, the March for Life and I interacted with a bunch of people that I didn't necessarily have um, exposure to before. A lot of ideas that I had initially thought were probably backwards or cons too conservative and were holding up back the country. And I realized that they, the people who believe those things, while they didn't align with my personal philosophy, they, they weren't bad people and their ideas weren't necessarily bad. And I had started to learn and understand that it took both sides to get anything done, right? Like we know that, bipartisan. But that's not what I'm even talking about. It takes... All ideas. Like you could solve a problem with a conservative idea, and you could solve a problem with a liberal idea. If we all bring our best ideas to the table, like if the Democrats and Republicans showed up and they addressed an issue and everyone proposed their best ideas and we took a little bit of what worked from the right and we took a little bit of what worked from the left, I think we'd oftentimes come away with probably really good solutions. And it was quick, quickly becoming apparent to me in my time down there that that wasn't really the philosophy of a the people in my po political program and the people I was in, interacting with and it wasn't the philosophy of the politicians in DC either um, it, I spent a lot of my free time because I was a nerd like just watching Don Lemon on CNN he had a daytime show at the time and I forget the other guy who also had a show that I watched all the time, but I, like, I was a big fan of Wolf Blitzer and Anderson Cooper, and I really did believe in the ideals of the free press, and so I learned quickly that, okay, maybe I didn't want to get into politics, maybe I don't want to be a Supreme Court justice, maybe I don't want a law degree, uh, maybe I want to do something else, and that's where I fell in love with kind of the idea of media and journalism. Okay, let's do journalism. And I had some really great journalism professors while I was down there, and I, I learned so much about the profession, and I met some really interesting people who had really abstract and cool ideas about what the role of journalism was in politics and holding people accountable, and I became idealistic in that manner. So my politics had started to shift probably around sophomore year from what makes, what makes politics work in you know, civics in that sense, and then what journalists' role could be if we were holding these politicians accountable. And oof, while in these circles, I was really into Barack Obama, and I really did believe that he was going to be the next president in the United States. I remember sophomore year of my high school, I was in a history class, and it was after the DNC convention um, for Kerry when Barack Obama gave his address that I said to my class the next day that he was going to be the next president. And I remember in 2008 watching his inauguration. Well, I guess it was 2009. Um, I, when he won the election, I got texts from friends in that class saying, wow, I can't believe it. I remember when you called this and here it is, like it happened. Um, and the only reason why that was obvious to me was because of the charism and cult of personality that was built around Barack Obama at the time, and I was in it. Like, I really loved that guy. I believed in him. And the rhetoric he was, you know, he ran on. Hope and change. Because that's what I believed we needed. It was obvious. Um, anyone who's my age, if you're 30, if you're a millennial, you remember 
vaguely at least, but probably more than vaguely, the tragedy of 9-11 and the follow, the events that followed where our country then goes into Afghanistan and then Iraq. And we were there for almost a decade when Barack Obama starts to run. And that hope and change rhetoric, this idea that we need to end these these conflicts, we need to win these wars, that we had already declared over. We had already said we won them, but we had more troops there than ever, and, and more people were dying in the Middle East than ever. So we need something different. I can't be a Republican. I'm going to be a Democrat, because I hate war, and I, I hate the bloodshed that we're causing, right? That was the idea. Barack Obama wins, um, and for the first term, I make excuses for everything he does, essentially, like... I found myself apologizing constantly for what he was doing, for the health care, for not being able to get a bailout for people that instead went to corporations, for big banks getting bigger, and all these things that happened under Obama that we seem to have forgotten. And I really started to find myself sickened by other Democrats who said things that they believed were true about you know, what it meant to be a Democrat about empowering the working class and, and having health care for everyone and trying to, you know, help end homelessness or limit gun violence and all these things. But there was never any solutions except for pointing fingers at the Republicans and blaming them. And I really didn't like that. And then you get into Hillary Clinton's time as Secretary of State. You get into the controversy with Benghazi. You get into all the issues with what happens with John Kerry and the Iran deal. By the time Barack Obama is leaving office, I am completely disillusioned with his ability to be the president of the United States. And that's what brings me to Bernie Sanders. Because Bernie Sanders to me represented my actual ideology in left-wing politics. Someone who was ready to go even further and who was saying the things that mattered, taking on the Federal Reserve or talking about how our trade has been gutted by people like the Clintons and Obama who had these trade deals that essentially empowered Asian countries while, and Mexico while gutting the middle class in America. I started reading a book by Thomas Frank called Listen Liberal, and that really was important to me, that book, because it was the first time I had seen in print uh, this discussion about how Bill Clinton's third-way politics that had come to domineer modern politics in the years 2014-2015 had manifested where essentially the Democrats were a middle ground between right-wing conservatives and the far left, and they, they had stolen that lane. And, and in 2016, when, or 2015 and 16, when Bernie Sanders is running up against Hillary Clinton, you see this, this uh, streak, this battle between Wall Street, corporate-owned Democrats, and the grassroots leftists, who were trying their hardest to unseat a corrupt establishment that had taken over the heart of the Democrat Party. And it was that time where I think my real eyes started to open to things. Because I'm a very online person, and I think a lot of people in our generation, like the millennial generation, are very online people. Being on Reddit 
for years at that point from 2012 on subreddits like the conspiracy subreddit and you know the political subreddits and like in the weeds like arguing with people online about politics was like a pastime it was so fun to me to be able to have these robust debates with people who are informed and sharing links and talking about ideas that's what it was and i don't know if people really remember that now it's strange to me because it wasn't that long ago but it doesn't seem like many people do remember it people get so touchy about politics on the internet they don't want to see it in their news feeds they don't want to read it on twitter they just want to get their news curated for them by the washington post the new york times cnn msnbc whatever but they can't have the discussion with people they actually know because god forbid that we don't have the exact same ideas that would make that would be tragic if your friend maybe was a republican how could you ever rationalize spending time with that person that's what it became as bernie sanders was running the internet changed because he was way more popular than Hillary Clinton online, but Hillary Clinton was way more powerful. And if you're not familiar with people like David Brock and Neera Tanden and what was happening with companies like Media Matters and Correct the Record and Act Blue and Share Blue on the left, going after Bernie Sanders before Donald Trump even enters the public consciousness of the left because he was a joke. Like he was never going to win, it was always going to be Bernie. If you don't remember what was happening on places like Reddit and Twitter at the time where they were purging left wing voices, the Reddit completely overtook Bernie Sanders' number one forum and put its moderated te took its moderating team and replaced it with shills that essentially ostracized most Bernie supporters. And it happened in real time. As WikiLeaks starts releasing the Podesta emails and Bernie supporters are scouring them to try and find anything relevant to this plight that they were in they uncovered so many awful awful things between john podesta and hillary clinton and these this circle of very powerful people who controlled the democrat party i mean we learned that donna brazil gave hillary clinton questions in advance of the debate we learned that john podesta and his powerful people were talking about you know how they got rid of civics classes in schools deliberately in order to keep the population more uninformed and complacent you know there's just a lot of things that opened people's eyes, but the biggest thing was that the superdelegates and the way that the DNC was organized in general had its thumb completely on the scale for Hillary Clinton. So there's a lot of misconceptions and conflation that goes around when you talk about what Bernie Sanders, like what happened to him. When you when you hear people say, oh, you know, it was stolen from Bernie, the primary was stolen from Bernie, you know, there's a lot of eyes that roll and say, well, Bernie wasn't gypped. And then there are other people who say, yeah, he definitely was. But there's a, it's, a, it's not one thing that happened to Bernie that made it so that it was stolen, but it was the entire machine that operated against him in order to ensure that his candidacy couldn't win. Before, the, before a single vote was cast by a voter, Hillary Clinton had 2,000 delegates and only needed like 3,000 in order to get the nomination. The delegates were just people who were high up in the party who pledged to vote for Hillary Clinton. So that's a sick game they were playing. And then you look at what was happening in caucus states where across the north and the and the west coast and, and the in the center of America, Bernie was trouncing Hillary Clinton in normal races. And then in caucus states, he was trouncing her even harder, except with the absentee ballot votes. And if you look in a lot of these really Democrat, um, DNC Democrat areas like Chicago and, and Orange County, California and Detroit, and New York City, New York State, you'd see Hillary Clinton way overperform, especially with the absentee va ballots, because what, I mean, I, ca I came to learn even before Bernie ran, but had really 
you know, it really exposed it to me at the time was this ability to just go to nursing homes and hospitals or find homeless people or, you know, sheltered people and get them to fill out ballots and have people just take them to the ballot box for you and stuff them into the, into drop boxes and see how the vote totals change. You're only trying to overcome small margins. So if in certain precincts you can get a couple hundred votes from a few sick or bedridden people, maybe they don't even have all their faculties about them, but you can get a signature or, or you don't even maybe even need their signature. You just sign it with them present. Who knows how dastardly it's gotten. But she was erasing leads in these caucus states where in person Bernie Sanders supporters would be there 10 to 1. But the absentee ballots, Hillary would win 20 to 1. And you'd be like, this is crazy. How could this be? Back in college now, we'll go backwards again. Um, I really was into the 9-11 stuff. And that was kind of the first conspiracy theory that I believed in because I really had a distrust of people like George Bush and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld naturally, which is again why it's surprising to me to see the left cling to these figures who for so long were their mortal enemies and now just because of Donald Trump like Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, Liz Cheney is a hero on the left because she speaks out against Donald Trump. Liz Cheney is a legacy politician of some of the most of one of the most evil figures in American history, just like Mika Brzezinski is Zygmunt Brzezinski's his daughter, and we all laud her, right? MSNBC is great. We love Morning Joe and Mika. Zygmunt Brzezinski is a terrible human being, and what he's done, his legacy that's impacted all of us, it should be common knowledge, but it's not. So we have all of these figures who, like Joe Panetta, who's in California, he's a congressman who's the son of Leon Panetta, you have this, or, or, you know, Soros's kid, or Kerry's kid, or Pelosi's kid, who are involved in these companies across the world while their parents are politicians, it just started to become so apparent that this network of political, this political class that operates for a billionaire donor class that always gets their way was running things. I didn't notice that at the time, but in, in, reading and learning about how the trade center towers fell and and getting into like the architects and engineers for 9-11 truth and the studies that they were putting out and the arguments they were making it became very apparent to me that the official story of 9-11 if if i would never go as far as to say at the time like i would never say oh that was an inside job like i don't believe george bush was planting bombs inside the building and i don't necessarily believe the u.s government wanted it to happen but maybe they're just covering up their own incompetence that wouldn't be too hard to to fathom considering the way the nist report and that investigation was handled it was a mess so of course perhaps the government isn't telling us everything and when you read the NIST report and you learn that Building 7 collapsed due to office fires, regular office fires, the only time it's ever happened in human history aside from the two other buildings that fell that day. It's never happened before where a steel-reinforced, fireproofed skyscraper collapsed due to fire. It just doesn't happen. It happened three times on 9-11. Now you'll say, okay, it was the planes that hit the towers. Those towers were designed specifically to withstand the impact of planes. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe it was human error, but... But you would think that the towers would topple over, and the towers did not topple over. They collapsed downward, straight downward. Now, the two, the two buildings, towers one and two, they ejected the rubble out 100 feet in either direction, 100 yards, whatever. So it's not a complete, total, you know, controlled demolition. But building seven, if you look at that video <clears throat> and you read the NIST report, it's just not, it doesn't, it's not compatible. And you can go down the rabbit hole for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different ways into 9-11. But 
once I came to the realization that, okay, 9-11 isn't 100% what we think it is, and it's also the defining event in my life, in my political life, it's changed the world, it's changed the country I live in, and it's caused my adult life to be marred by endless war. We've killed millions of people in the name of the thousands who died, and we don't even know why or how exactly they died because the government won't give us the official story. I really became, started to become jaded, and not just jaded with, like, specific politicians but jaded with the system itself and it really made me start questioning sort of everything else i had learned about politics in america and i went back and started looking at okay maybe jfk wasn't killed by lee harvey oswald i hadn't i didn't even i was never even curious about it like it never even crossed my mind that okay maybe jfk wasn't Maybe there was some more there. Oh, I, I knew about the grassy knoll and how there were crazy people who believed that there were multiple gunmen, but I just thought they were nut jobs or insane people. So that was obvious. <laughs> and it's funny because like all you have to do is look a little bit into the JFK assassination, just like a little bit into 9-11 and you, and you can't avoid the, conf the conflicts of the stories. You can't avoid... The inconsistencies and the questions that still linger to this day <clears throat> and I mean it there's only one thing you could say if they, if you have if you have questions now that haven't been answered you know why wouldn't they want to answer every single question when it comes to the death of a president of the United States or then Martin Luther King or then Robbie Kennedy who dies a year later and the assassins who killed these people like what are those? What, are, what does it tell you? Okay, well, maybe this conspiracy is big. Maybe it's not just these individual events. Maybe there's more going on. Maybe the rich and powerful in our society have undue control. And maybe the events that we think are natural and just, like, occurring in our lives because, you know, that's what it would seem. Maybe there are people who pull the strings in ways that we're not sure. But, I mean, I didn't have any answers, and I still don't have answers. But I did have way more questions than I ever had. And it was those questions that when Barack Obama was leaving office led me to really desire something different. And that's when I got to Bernie Sanders. And when Bernie Sanders is obviously robbed out of the primary and gets behind Hillary Clinton, I have to resist that. And it's Bernie Sanders who kneels behind Hillary Clinton even after when he has all the power. If Bernie had decided to run third party, yeah, maybe Hillary Clinton and Bernie don't win. But Bernie knows they're not winning anyway. Like, I know it's hard to believe, but people like me, who were the left-wing Democrat, who were ardent Bernie supporters, people like me who were phone canvassing and knocking on doors, were so disillusioned by that move. The official number is that 12% of Bernie supporters voted for Trump, and that another, I think it's like 8% didn't vote at all, which is what, 20% of the Bernie Sanders support? Uh, I would say it's probably higher. In my time as a Trump supporter, I've spoken to countless people about why they love Trump, and I would say about 50% of the people I talked to about Trump weren't conservative before voting for Trump. They identified as the far left because Bernie and Trump agreed on something on two very important issues, and that was, one, the wars had to end, and that was something that Hillary Clinton wasn't committed to at all, and in fact, she was ready to increase our wars the first thing she would have done was put a, a no-fly zone in Russia, which would have turned a proxy war in Syria that Barack Obama had started into a hot war with Russia on the ground in Syria. And now with Joe Biden in office, that's still a concern that I'm worried about. It's one of the tragedies of Trump's administration is that he didn't do more to end these wars and prevent, and prevent 
you know, us being able to do more to keep escalating like Biden just has with a with a strike in in Syria in the first hundred days of his office. So Trump and Bernie agreed on the wars and then they both agreed on trade. And those two issues were so important because the middle class of America in 2015 was starting to really feel the hurt that had been caused by the bailout in 2008. And here we are in 2020, and we're still talking about things like the $15 minimum wage. And I know that I've brought this up on a previous podcast where, uh, you know, the financial crisis of 2008 was sparks the desire for the $15 minimum wage. And here we are now, that's 11 years ago. And maybe they still won't give us a $15 minimum wage. Democrats voted for Joe Biden because he promised to pay them $2,000 on day one. Here we are 50 days later, we're getting maybe $1,400 to some people, which is still less people than Trump gave money to and less money that Trump gave out while he was president. So you're not even getting the promise that Joe Biden made when it was Trump who said that he wanted a pork-free bill that was only going to send $2,000 to everyone. I would love it. it. Jeff Bezos could get a $2,000 check. Like That wouldn't make me mad if everyone was getting a $2,000 check, and that was it. But instead, you have a bill here where $1.9 trillion is going to be spent, which is equivalent to about $6,000 for every U.S. citizen, and only some of those citizens are going to see maybe $1,400. That's really a sick thing to me. It's disgusting, actually. So that's the way our government had operated long before Trump. And now in the wake of Trump's presidency, it's how we're operating again. And it's impossible to look at these people as anything other than criminals. And not just criminals, but like malicious, oppressive, authoritarian criminals who are doing everything now in their power to retain and, and consolidate their ability to govern and control you. They have, they have barbed wire fences around the Capitol. They have barricades. They have armed forces in our nation's capital. D.C., I haven't been. I just said I just said the other day that I would love to go back down to D.C. and do the malls, but do the mall and see all the monuments because it's been a while since I've been down there. And all I can think of is how different the city just appears from, from now the news and everything where the cap- you can't get anywhere near the Capitol or the White House because it's essentially under lock and key. But that's the way authoritarians act when they know that their power is Ill- illegitimate in the eyes of the people. And I think when you look at the YouTube page for Joe Biden and you see how many downvotes he gets on every single thing they post, and you see how the comments are locked because they're afraid of the comments from the American people, it's obvious that the people are aware so if you're someone who sits there and you're, you voted for Joe Biden, I've never met someone who's like, I not only voted for Joe Biden, but I think he's doing a great job and I like him. There's a few people like that on Twitter. I don't know how authentic it is because in my opinion, most of the internet at this point is, is just bots paid for by corporations and po- political parties and PACs. So I really doubt that the sentiment is out there that Joe Biden is doing well, yet you look at the opinion polls and he's got se- 61% approval rating. It's hard not to feel like you live in anything other than a Korean propaganda state, and that's tragic, and it's what we've come to. You look at the actions and the questions and the events of our lifetime in the political class, and you can't come away with anything other than the people of this country have been tremendously disserved by the people who run the country. 21 years of war. That has cost us trillions and trillions of our wealth that have gone to places like Boeing and Halliburton and Raytheon. Raytheon now controls the Pentagon and we're bombing Syria for what? 
Not for the, it's not what we want as people. So the questions have to be asked. Here we are now, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but are we in the middle of it? Hopefully we're at the end of it, who knows? We have vaccines now. But you can't question the authoritative sources. You can't, you can't question the official narrative. When I was getting into the 9-11 conspiracy theory, it really did feel like no one would ever... <clears throat> the sentiment would never change. And I remember right before Trump had won, there was a Gallup poll that had come out where about 58 or 55% of the electorate had questions about the official story of 9-11. And wow, I was so impressed with that number. And I think in the four years of Donald Trump, something's happened in the minds of leftists in this country where now they have clung to the FBI and the CIA and authoritative sources and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. And I can't help but feel like these people are mentally broken. And they look at people like me who were into conspiracy theories and questioning the official narrative, who have inherent distrust of the system and the politicians who run the system and look at us like we're the dangerous people because they saw a few very upset people storm a capital after watching a year's worth of riots in cities around the country where buildings were burned and private businesses were burned and police were killed and civilians were assaulted that's not how you protest you should protest at the Capitol. You should make Nancy Pelosi scared. You should make Chuck Schumer scared. You should make Mitch McConnell scared. You should make Joe Biden and Donald Trump scared. They're your people. Those are who you elected. It's not the average shop owners in, in downtown Kenosha. It's not people in Portland, Oregon who are trying to operate a bed and breakfast. No. But we've lost a way. And I think that that's... Really, my political philosophy at this point is nothing you see on the news is news. It's all curated half-truths used to lead you in specific directions in order to control what the populace does. And it's the CIA playbook that they literally allow you to read. It's all online. You can go look at Operation Paperclip or Mockingbird. You can go deep in the weeds on what some of these people have said over the years of what they want to do with population control or mind control or the, the ability to give the population falsehoods that'll make them more complacent and easier to manipulate. We are being manipulated every single day. As long as we're so focused on things like race and not focused on this massive class divide where the billionaire class is, is not tied to any nation, where they are a breakaway society that essentially controls every government on this earth, and they are moving steadily towards one government that has complete control over every single one of our lives, where we are all unarmed and complacent, where we're put, essentially they want to plug us into a matrix, just like in the movies. So I think I'll leave it there. I have spoke for a half hour. I've accomplished my goal of filling my half of the podcast. Who knows what Frankie will leave you with. I recommend you go over and after you listen to this one, you listen to his. I'm sure it'll be very interesting. Next week we'll be back together where we'll come and we'll talk about actual current events and we'll give you you know, the same brothers catch up that you're used to. But I hope that this half hour lecture <laughs> about my political philosophy and my conspiracy theories, uh, I hope that was entertaining. Um, but if not, at least it's all on the record. You don't have to listen to all of it. You don't have to listen to any of it. I really do appreciate any listeners that we have. And I really do, you know, we use this as a little outlet for the both of us. And um, I appreciate any, any, any support, whether it's just 
you know, a message that says, hey, I like what you do. So I hope that you have a good week, and we will see you again next time on the Brothers Catch-Up. Be very well.